Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast ready to myth-bust your understanding of agriculture. Today we have Laura. So today we're going to be talking about agriculture, um, what it really is, how it operates, the different facets of the system, and what we need to do um, to make it more sustainable and sustainable in kind of a broad view of the term. Uh, Today we have an incredible guest with us uh, from the Farm to Tabor podcast, Sarah Tabor. Am I saying your name right? Yes, ma'am. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself um, as it relates to agriculture or anything you feel comfortable sharing? Cool. Uh, Yeah, I grew up not on a farm, but I really loved working outside. I liked being with plants, which means you're going to wind up working in agriculture. And when you want to work in ag, but your daddy doesn't own land, (laughs) (laughs) there's only one way in, and that is to learn how to do things that farms either won't or can't do on their own. Um, (laughs) So you start by doing a lot of grunt work, and you kind of work your way up, and that's what I did. And eventually wound up getting a doctorate. So now I'm a crop scientist uh, with a lot of dirty jobs background. Um, A lot of background working with farm laborers, you know, like just working with prison inmate crews, that kind of stuff, Um, which gives you kind of a different look at the whole situation than the one the owners have. And we're going to talk about. No, that's super cool. Um, Because a lot of farmers that I work with don't have that experience. They have the like, I was born into this situation, Mm -hmm. um, which feels pretty common for the farming landscape in America also. (laughs) Yeah, it used to be like, it used to be really, really common to just get your own place and start farming. And that's become much less common as land has become more expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, I think a lot of things in just the U.S. and in general, and then agriculture make a lot of sense. If you just remember the United States, like as a nation is a real estate hustle, right? Mm. Um, So if you get at the ground floor, life is pretty good. But if you wait until costs go up, then, you know, there's some barriers to entry there. So that's, you know, like you mentioned, like basically the only way to farm at this point because of the costs um, is either to be born into it or or to marry your way in. There are a lot of folks who start as kind of a second career or they start when they're new, but they're very limited in size. Um, a lot of them wind up just like other farmers working two or three jobs, you know, to, to cover the bills. And so I feel like, um, like that's something we really have to acknowledge when we're talking sustainable agriculture is there are huge costs involved. It is not a climb that one person can make on their own. And so, um, I feel like the way that small farming has been glamorized kind of in and of itself is missing the point a little bit about what actually needs to happen. Like we need some big scale change. And that's not something individual people can hack on their own. So we need to look more at the connective tissue behind that, which is a very vague statement. And we're going <laughs> to. Yeah, we're going to we're going we're gonna to get there. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so k- kind of just going off of that, uh, you know, when when I hear you talk about that, you know, hearing about the different systems and things kind of going on behind the scenes, why is understanding how the food system works in the United States so important um and and maybe we can kind of do an overview of what the food system looks like in the United States for people that might not know um and (laughs) (laughs) like it's just a small question right um 
But I think it's important because it can tell us about how we produce our relationship to the environment. You know, I don't know how big we want to go. I I feel like with this question, it can be like, you know, it it really changed with the dawn of the refrigerated train car. (laughs) Um, You know, because like that did change everything. But also like we don't have to go that far. Uh, Totally. I guess what what do you see as the main things that we need to know about how the food system works in the United States today? Oh, man. Okay, so there's a couple things. Um, <laughs> one is, and I think this is really important, the, the myth of everything used to be family farms, mm-hmm. and they were small, and they were good, and then agribusiness took them over without their consent, and now it's terrible because of that, is a cooked-up narrative. That is not what happened at all. <laughs> sure, yeah. So that's that's kind of one big thing. That's like kind of like an ur myth that really seems to to really have taken hold. Um, Do you and want to talk boy, a little bit about like what actually was that yes. history there? Yeah, we're gonna get there in a second. Okay, and then cool. the other one that, that kind of links with it is like, what does agribusiness actually look like today? Sure. Um, so those are kind of like interrelated. So what agribusiness really means today is. Um, I think the the word that folks need to know is integrators. So an integrator is a company like Tyson or Purdue or Smithfield um, in the meat industry or like ADM and Cargill in the grain industries that kind of handle the infrastructure. So um, we kind of have this this discourse about how food comes from farms, right? Um, You know, didn't you know that food comes from farms, not the grocery store? Except that's bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Except when it doesn't. Yeah, if you think food comes from farms, walk over to a farm, walk up to a cow, take a bite out of her, and let me know how that works out for you. There's a couple intermediary steps. Yeah, for sure. Um, And I think what's really interesting is that a lot of those steps that come between a farm and and eating something uh, traditionally were women's work. And so they're not really seen as work and they're not seen as relevant. And so I feel like that's really a driving force behind a lot of, number one, the erasure of food processing and how it's always had a role in food systems. You know, we keep kind of wanting to try and make it all about the farm and not about food processing is because that was never seen as much as legitimate work. And if we're trying to cut the frills out of our society, um, well, first off, how dare anybody get paid for doing what women used to do for free? I think that's (laughs) a big one. (laughs) Yes. It's kind of it's seen as kind of sleazy and dishonest, right? It's just super interesting. Um, So that's part of it. so integrators, they often do like kind of collecting the stuff after it comes off the farm because getting food to a consumer distribution is a completely different job than farming. When you're farming, you have to be there on the farm running the farm. And to distribute food, you have to leave the farm, right? So, <laughs> so this is a job that by definition, small family farms really can't do effectively. So if we're talking about having um, a food system that's based on small family farms and therefore there's going to be no agribusiness, those are two mutually exclusive things, mm-hmm. right? Um, somebody's got to be doing that distribution. That's that's something that I find a lot of folks who talk about how agribusiness is bad, which, yes, it does a lot of bad things. But we don't kind of grapple with the fact that it's performing functions that are vital. So if you get rid of it, bad things happen. Um, I think we really need to be focused on like, okay, we still have these infrastructural needs. Do we have alternative ways to meet them rather than just going, boo, agribusiness bad, right? Um So I'm just kind of like looking at it from a systems perspective. So in the case of, for example, poultry broilers, Uh um, I think that's a really famous example of how farmers are like held in a semi-feudal like serfdom to the integrators and it's super bad. But if you actually look at the data, poultry farmers like growing broilers are the best off farmers in America. Mm. No one ever talks about that. 
um, they're actually doing quite well. Like the average farmer is still doing much better than the average American. Hmm. They're more money. And that's been the case since the mid nineties. So this bullshit about how farmers are poor is, is really messed up. You'll have individual commodities that have some bad years, like dairy's having a super rough patch right now. And I don't want to dismiss that reality. But at the same time, agriculture is a lot bigger than one industry. It's a whole sector of the economy. Um, and so to kind of go like, here's this one niche that's doing really bad, therefore farming is bad, <laughs> is really kind of like missing the point. Um, so poultry farmers, to kind of to reel it back a little bit, um, there is a tournament pricing system. So the way the pricing of the contracts is done, you do wind up with a bottom 10, 20, maybe 30% of farmers who aren't doing very well. But... Poultry farmers on average, and particularly like the upper half of them, are doing extremely well, especially considering that most of them are dudes with nothing beyond a high school education living in places where the cost of living is super low and there are no other jobs. So to kind of paint it with this broad brush of some people are doing badly because of the details of this pricing system versus like, but a whole lot of them are doing very well for the exact same reason. Mm. Um that's something that the sustainability industry, like, I really haven't seen addressed, and it really needs to be, because there's tons of wealth being made in agriculture. Um, like, the amount of money being made really gets alighted when we kind of have this universal, all farmers are suffering all the time discourse. And if we think they're all suffering and poor all the time, we really miss the, uh, the political weight that they carry. Because we're just assuming that they're they're suffering and they're not doing anything out there. Like they have agency, they are doing stuff, and they're doing it with a lot of money. So, <laughs> yeah, I I think you're you know that's totally correct, and I think that there's also I mean I think homogenizing any group of people is dangerous to mm -hmm. to not understanding the whole picture, right? And so when mm -hmm. we when we kind of have this mentality of all farmers are poor it it makes it a much simpler issue than what it actually is mm -hmm. um but I also you know in the same vein I think that there is there is a reality that some farmers do face that is like affected in this like the feudal systems as well as like if they are a smaller farmer uh and are struggling with the issues of sustainability that we'll we'll get to in a little while mm -hmm. uh they they the smaller ones are maybe the ones that are the ones that people often think of uh, who are left to, to kind of go into these uh, poor decision making or maybe backed into poor decision making when it comes time to hire labor and things like that. Right. So that's exactly the kind of thing I want to address. So um, we kind of mentioned before that this whole narrative of how it used to all be small family farms until there was an agribusiness takeover is really a whitewash on what actually happened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we're going to talk about how uh, these these family farms came to be, right? Um, a lot of the original farming, like the, the original land grabs and settlement was done by corporate operations. And then it was actually taken over by family farms. That's what really happened in a lot of these places. Um, the Red River Valley in Minnesota is a really famous example. Uh, the Great Plains, this was very prevalent because um, the Great Plains were kind of the last part of the U.S. to be settled. There were already railroads going through it by the time people are coming in. So this is a very friendly area for corporate takeovers. It's easy transportation, all that stuff. Um, I did a podcast a little bit ago about, um, oh, I did the recording. It's going to come out later. Um, about the, the origins of the beef industry. So it was just a lot of speculative buying up of land, sight unseen, and then just kind of throwing cattle onto it. That's why they branded them, is they would just literally throw the cows out there and then be like, we'll come find you later. Um, <laughs> like, like no planning involved here. 
And that was actually behind a lot of why the Chicago Meat Packers took over is all these speculative buyers bought all this land, threw cows on it, and it never occurred to them, maybe we should figure out how to turn these things into meat. They just left that to somebody else. And that's how the Chicago Meat Packers happened. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Like when you put it that way, you're like, wait a second. Um, so yeah, they, they didn't invest in their supply chains. They were just, I'm going to, it's a very colonial business model. I'm going to grab land and just extract rents from it. I'm not going to actually think of this like a business that's a supply chain. It has lots of steps, you know, before there's actually usable product. So again, we're doing this thing where we're elighting the importance of food processing, which is traditionally women's work. Like that's not a thing that investors do. That's not business. That's chores. Um, so that, that and it's kind of funny that that really wound up being their downfall. It's kind of interesting. And then yeah. the- <laughs> no, that's super yeah. fascinating. It's really yeah. interesting because my my knowledge of this is so not focused on the meat side of things. And it's, so I'm like very much like, yes, this is amazing to learn. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, just, it's so fascinating to me how you know, it's, it's still, you know, the 1800s. And so the men who took this women's work seriously as value added labor are the ones who really made out like bandits, right? Which is, you know, obviously, there are other things they did, like, you know, screwing around with railroad contracts, right? But at the base of it, their business model was women's work. And I feel like that to some extent feeds into the overall impressions that what they're doing is like shady and dishonest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that fits in with, uh, you know, systemic patriarchy, for sure. Yeah, I mean, like, there are actually abuses happening as well. But it was like in the service of doing stuff, again, traditionally considered women's work. Yeah, um, yeah. So that doesn't help their their PR. Um so anyway, so that was a lot of the U.S. was actually settled by corporate farms. And then it turns out there's just too much like the 1870s and 1880s and 1890s were covered with these boom bust cycles. And it was it was kind of like Silicon Valley, you know, like this is just the sponge where all the excess money goes at the moment. Um, so a lot of investments from the eastern seaboard and a lot from Europe were going into the U.S. Great Plains um, for these big wheat and cattle operations. And then, you know, an economic crisis hits and... You know, it's like when Silicon Valley had their big bust in the 90s, right? Um, all the money flees and people are a lot more cautious about investing in the future. And that's what opened it up to family operations. Mm. And the advantage of a family operation is you can farm as a part-time job. And, you know, a lot of people also did full-time, but it's becoming more and more like it's a part-time thing. So that's another thing to be aware of when we're talking about this, you know, um, farming is so bad discourse is a lot of people are not trying to make a living at it. They're kind of doing it like it's a hobby and that will show in your financials. Right. Sure. Um, sure. <laughs> and that's, I kind of suspect that's a lot of why crop prices are so low is there's so many people doing it basically as a hobby or like, um, like a lifestyle thing. Like so many people, there's a huge volume of people doing this and that will take the prices down to the bare minimum. Right. Um, like agriculture is full of scabs. That's why the prices are so low. I just don't really know how else to explain that. <laughs> um, it's not politically correct to say, but it's the truth. Sure. How about, I I guess like another thing for me that I think about when it comes to these systems and what, especially on the consumer end of things, why different products are so cheap. Um, mm-hmm. I think talking about subsidies and how the U.S. government... Oh, hang on. Hold up. Hold up. My bad. We're not done yet. <laughs> oh, okay. Great. Great, 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 great. Sorry, sorry, sorry. This is a fucking long story. I'm so sorry. No, it's great. I'm just like, I just want to make sure... <laughs> I'm just like, here's what this is making me think of now. Great. Right, yeah. No, it's so hard to get through this thing because like agriculture, anytime you talk about it, you can instantly go in 20 different directions. Like, oh, it's for a sure. Challenge. 
every time. Um, okay, so these family operations actually take over from corporate agribusiness, right? Um, but then come to find out, like, the family operation business model is, again, it's a colonial business model. It might be small, but it's still colonialism, right? Mm-hmm. I own land, and, you know, I kind of, like, the agricultural business model is gambling, basically. Like, people think it's making stuff, but it's actually gambling. Like, that's really how you should think of it when you're, if you're trying to understand why things are the way they are. Um, I have land. I'm going to gamble on wheat this year, or if you're in a corn and soybeans area, I'm going to bet on corn or, you know, soybeans. And, um, you know, whatever happens, happens. And a lot of the federal risk management structure and the crop insurance is there basically to make sure that, you know, farmers always win. Um, Because God forbid that we have a gambling business model and then people actually lose. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, So that's a lot of how, you know, the family operations did things. And because they're only farming part time, they can afford to gamble. They're not making their living off of that. The other thing that's important to understand about family farming is how much of it was tenant farming. It's really shocking. Mm. Um, we have this legend that it was all small independent family farms. Uh, uh-uh. <laughs> like if you actually go back and look at the USDA census statistics, like even in Iowa, like there's more tenant farmers in Iowa than there were in North Carolina in 1920. Can you uh, Sarah just explain, explain briefly what tenant farming is in case people aren't aware? Yes. So small family farming, the way we usually think of it is when you own your land and you work it yourself as a family. Uh, tenant farming is when somebody else owns it and you rent it and you farm it. So it's basically the difference between being a homeowner and renting a house. Like you still live in the house, you still work on the farm, but it makes a huge difference on wealth accumulation, right? So tenant farmers are having to pay rent, uh, just like rental house livers. And if you, uh, own a piece of land or a house, even if it's small, you're still keeping the payments. Like you're, you're still building wealth within that piece of property. Um, so that's, I think, a thing that is really understated about homesteading is we have this legend that people did it with the intent to be independent. That is not why they did it. They did it to get on the property ladder so they could buy nice things someday. And, you know, having to, like, whittle your own cup out of a branch, you know, <laughs> or whatever, you know, it's, that's kind of like, oh, yeah, they were hardy and independent. Well, they were doing that to save bucks while they were, like, proving at their homestead so they could climb, climb the property ladder. That's why that was happening. It wasn't like that was anybody's goal. Um, and a lot of these folks, uh, either started out as tenants or wound up as tenants because farming is pretty precarious. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you had this landlord tenant system that really was a lot more prominent, I think, in the food system than family farms. Um, you know, cause, cause the tenant farms may be smaller number, but they're much larger. And so even in the Midwest, you know, where the legend is, it used to be filled with small family farms and that's why it was prosperous. And there are all these small towns, bullshit that was built by sharecropping, mm-hmm. even in the Midwest. Um, and so I think it really kind of explains why we have this mental image, like both of the family farmer is like a prosperous, like we're doing okay, we're self-sufficient, we have butter, you know, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but there's also this image of like poor, scrabbling, you know, dirt floors, poverty, you know, that kind of thing. That's why we have both of those. They both existed. One were the tenants, one were the landlords. Right. And we kind of inherited those images without really understanding what they mean. Yeah, that's super interesting. And like, not to mention the entire Homestead Act being like the biggest colonial, like, yeah, like there's like a there's so much there's so much we that it's like, how do you even how do you even begin to cover it all? Right? Yeah. And that's I mean, that's the thing, right? 
Um, and the Homestead Act, it's kind of funny because on the one hand, it was kind of a giveaway. And on the other hand, like by the time they were just giving land away, it was land that you couldn't really live on so well. Right. And right. so it was seen as both a giveaway, but also kind of a scam. And, you know, things can be both. Life is complicated. Um, but again, like remember that the farming business model is not building things, it's gambling. And so what the Homestead Act meant was that you could keep rolling the dice. If you fail out on this year's, you know, thing or you don't make your five year, you know, prove up commitment you can go homestead somewhere else and you can roll the dice again. If you are say a black sharecropper in the South and you don't get to homestead, you never get to roll the dice again. You're already stuck. Right. And I think that's a way that it really helped, you know, for some people it really helped build wealth and for other people it just kept them out of generate like multi-generational debt. And that in itself is a huge wealth boost, you know, over the long term. Absolutely. Uh, even if you're, even if your homesteading didn't work out, at least you weren't a sharecropper. Right. Um, so, so what happened with agribusiness, quote unquote, the agribusiness takeover? So again, the, the mental image that a lot of us are kind of given is that it was family farms investing in equipment and kind of buying each other out and consolidating. And that didn't really start happening like with haste until the 70s or the 80s. What was happening before then was just landlords buying tractors to replace their sharecroppers. Mm. So it was really just management evicting labor is what it was. Um, so if you look at these graphs that they have of like, there used to be this many farmers in 1920, and then the number went, when it plummeted, that's entirely sharecropping and farmers of color. There's the same exact number of white landowning farmers now as they were in 1920, 3 million. Wow. That is right? an incredible statistic. <laughs> yeah. Funny how they don't ever talk about that. Right. Why? Oh my God. I've seen that graph like a thousand times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's crazy because that data is publicly available on the internet in PDFs from the USDA agricultural censuses. It is right there for anybody to fact check and nobody fucking has, Shit. which is really interesting. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. Yes. Right. And I've had a couple times when I'm like, let me pitch to the Washington Post or the, you know, like New York Times. Like we need to talk about this. There's this lie at the heart of everything we're trying to fix in agriculture. Um, and, and I'll get this response back. Like, I don't, I don't get it. This uh -huh. doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Are you crazy? <laughs> You're like, well, I mean, there's there's data. We could yes. we could check on this, but yeah. the myth is so prevalent that people don't trust the data. Wow. Yeah. So that's fun. So um, so when we're talking about small family farmers today, and they're like, you know, more than four generations old, that probably means they're a landlord who evicted their tenants. Okay. Um, right. And they invited agribusiness into the house to help them do this, and now they have the fucking nerve to complain about the results. It's kind of frustrating. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, that that sounds sounds about right. <laughs> right? Yeah. So that's, that's why I don't get invited onto agriculture podcasts very often. <laughs> what a shame. Yeah. So like, yeah, that's, I don't know, that's kind of just something that, I, you know, after working on farms for several years, you know, like, there are some that actually function very well. I don't want to paint it like the entire agriculture industry is just as function. It's only like 98% like that. <laughs> sure, sure. I just, you know, it, it depends on the area. You know, there are a lot of farms who are really functional. And it's it's really interesting to see how many of them have figured out the way to succeed in life is to invest in your labor, to train people properly, uh, to reinvest in the land. Like a whole bunch of people have figured that out independently because that is what works. And at the same time, how many people are not doing that? You know, um, and, we, and we kind of have this mythology that doing it right is impossible and terrible. We can get in, into it in a minute as to maybe why that belief is so prevalent. Mm. Um, but it's really interesting that that kind of 
a lot of people found a way to make it click by investing in their land and investing in their people and actually looking at it as a business with a supply chain as opposed to, I have a patch of land, let me gamble on it. Um, and that lines up exactly actually with what I found from companies talking about, here's how you do manufacturing that is clean. You know, here's how you run a retail store in a way that doesn't exploit your workers, Walmart style. Mm-hmm. Um, there are companies and farms that do it right all day, every day. And yet the sustainability movement has really kind of overlooked their existence. And that makes me like as a working class person, I find that infuriating because if there's a way to treat your workers and your land and your people, right. And people are out there doing it all the time. We should be talking about that. Yeah. Um, but really the discourse that you get is it's very simplistic. It's like capitalism bad. And you're like, yes, there's a lot of things about it that are very, very terrible. And yet, you know, some folks have found ways to kind of meet everybody's needs within that framework. Um, so we should talk about how that's getting done instead of just kind of throwing up our hands and going like, oh, no, like, you know, but at the same time, like, if there's folks doing it right all day, every day within this framework, if you don't have to wait for a revolution to fix everything, we should get on that. But we won't because we won't even acknowledge that this is happening. Hmm. Yeah. So, right. Yeah. Um, there are all these tenant farmer associations. So the tenant farmers, and this is, I think, where people get confused as you look at them and you're like, well, they're growing plants and working with a mule all day. They're a farmer. Um, but they thought of themselves as labor. Hmm. You know, uh, they formed unions. Right. They, there was the Southern Tenant Farmers Union and a number of other unions. Like they thought of themselves as labor. They organized like labor. They were labor. Um and so to kind of like erase that kind of, um, you know, tenant bastard like situation is really kind of missing the point when we just kind of, um, I think the whole point of kind of fixating on family farms is we don't have to worry about labor issues. We don't have to go like, oh, maybe this has always had kind of a wretched past. Um, it lets us build this fictional past where everything was great. And then I feel like a lot of sustainable food marketing is really kind of built around nostalgia and just kind of like, Totally cocooning you and this feeling of goodness and like old timiness. And you're like, that's so fucking toxic. <laughs> that's never going to yeah, get Yeah, it's literally buying into the fucking make America great again vibes. Like that's yeah. like some weird ass shit that like there's some historical time that we want to get back to that was simpler mm-hmm. somehow. Right. You're like, it never really worked. And the thing that kills me is um, kind of like upstate New York and Pennsylvania. Like it's not New England, but people call it New England. Um, was like legendary for having these like really profitable, self-sustaining farms, and you're That's like, where I one. live, <laughs> right? So number one, they got that land because someone stole it right. and they did it out to landlords for free, and a lot of those people were tenants, not independent landowners. Yes. And and second, uh, they weren't self-sufficient; they were smuggling all this wheat down to Haiti. <laughs> <laughs> it was like yeah. the yeah, it was like the Emerald Triangle of its day. They were like smuggling all this contraband, and then when the you know assessors are like man you guys are so prosperous what are you doing oh just sufficient bountiful harvests you know (laughs) (laughs) nothing to see here right yeah so like uh colonial haiti was the colonial united states' second biggest trading partner after england um and they weren't supposed to be trading with haiti at all because it was a french colony um and that's not how like mercantilist colonialism was supposed to work you're only supposed to trade with england but uh the the home countries back in Europe, their land policy was built around keeping grain expensive because the landlords all owned, like all the aristocracy owned grain land. Like that was their, that was their thing. And so in order to appease the aristocracy, like the policy in those home countries had to keep grain prices very high. 
So, um, so I think France's were probably higher than England's and the, the, the slave owners down in Haiti were like, I don't want to buy French grain if I can get it for cheap from the Hudson Valley. Right. Mm. So they had, it's kind of funny cause we talk about triangle trade and you're like, like a couple legs of it were smuggling. Um, yeah, totally. <laughs> right. So there's all this rum from Haiti going up to, you know, the colonial United States and there's all this grain coming down from the colonial United States to Haiti where it was not supposed to be going at all because they could grow all the like manioc and like um, plantains that they wanted down in Haiti. Um, and a lot of them did for slave food purposes, but that wasn't classy. Like the slave owners were rich and they wanted to eat fucking croissants and baguettes. So <laughs> they had to get wheat from somewhere and uh, the French stuff was too expensive. So they bought it all smuggled in from America. Um, yeah. So that's fun. That's kind of like a, a little fun piece of the mythology about prospering family farms. Absolutely. Um, did you want to dip into to the governmental side of things also? How? What about it? Specifically about the um, subsidies. Um, so I don't really just deal a lot with that. What I will tell you is everyone thinks that subsidies are the reason grain is cheap, and it's not. Mm. Grain is just fucking cheap. Um, totally. <laughs> yeah, the just... way that I think about it is actually more in when I think about, like, beef um, and, like, the fact that there are dollar menus all across like fast food nation or whatever and how cheap that is in comparison to other things and like what aspects are at play in uh you know whether it's the folks who are lobbying on behalf of mcdonald's or the folks that are uh lobbying on behalf of um cattle ranchers um right so I think if we're talking specifically about fast food burgers and beef, mm -hmm. um, that has a lot more to do with processing than it does with growing the animals. Uh, most of the beef that goes into burgers is from retired dairy animals. It's not from the critters that are raised for beef. Um, <laughs> so like it's, it's kind of funny because people hear beef industry and they think burgers, but they don't really have that much to do with the beef industry per se. The beef industry is about making steak. Right, because you need like especially bred animal that's gonna marble nice, and it's like brought through this specific fattening regime to make a good steak. And then sometimes you'll have some burger left over from them, but that's not why those animals are raised. Mm. Like it's all about the steak, right? Sure. Um, so again, if we're talking about food and classism, I think that's a really fascinating example. Is we're kind of going like, oh, there's too much beef consumption. It must be about the burgers, but the burgers are just a byproduct of all the other fucking stuff that's going on. Um, you know, if you're talking about mass availability of beef, it's because they're retired dairy animals, you know, um, they've already lived out their productive lifespan and now we're just making a byproduct. And again, like the trimmings from, from like Angus steak cattle, you know, um, that's a byproduct. So if we're looking at like the reason we have so many cattle, I don't really think burgers are the place you should start. Sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they're a byproduct of everything else. Right. So, um, you know, if, and again, there's some class connotation here, right? Because the people who eat a lot of steaks are rich. And the people who eat a lot of burgers, at least the way we perceive it, are poor. Right. And, you know, and the focus is always on the burgers, which are not even driving the consumption. We don't talk about rich people eating too much steak. Like, that's kind of taboo, which is kind of fascinating. It is so fascinating. I think, like, the idea of eating steak is so foreign to me that I'm just like, <laughs> like I, I, it's so out of my frame of reference 
because I'm working class and I don't really think about it. So it's really fascinating to think about. Right. Yeah. We're just eating their leftovers. (laughs) It's kind of amazing. Yeah, well, it actually kind of gets back to, like, the poor people are eating too much beef discourse is not a product of global warming. It goes back over 100 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so when the beef industry was first starting out, and the, we kind of go over this in the in the beef industry podcast with Josh Spetched, um, who wrote Red Meat Republic, shameless plug. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he was talking about back in the Gilded Age when, like, the industrial beef first became available, like, thanks to the Chicago meatpacking apparatus. Um rich people were so pissed off that like the working class was eating a lot of steak. Um, Cause it was driving up the price of steak as they perceived it. Like ground beef wasn't really much of a thing yet. It was mostly stew beef. I think what they did with the leftovers, they would can it, you know, corned beef, that kind of thing. Um, but the working class bought a lot of steaks cause it was finally affordable. And um, the rich were pissed off and they were like, why don't you just make a brisket, just cook it right. And you can eat the brisket. And, the thing about cooking it right is that it takes, you know, many, many hours. Like, it, there are no crock pots at this time. That means someone has to be physically in the kitchen. Well, how the fuck are you going to do that when you're pulling 14 hours down at the textile plant? Right. You know? <laughs> like, the whole reason that poor people were buying steak, like, yes, it's pleasurable to eat. But also, you just have to sear it for a couple minutes on each side and it's ready to go. And um, particularly when you're living in cold, filthy, crowded conditions and you're pulling crazy long work days, um, cheap easily digestible animal protein is like a line between life and death and so it's really kind of appalling to read what the rich people are up to like being really pissed off at poor people eating the one thing that was going to keep them alive um, because it was driving up the price of steak it was very interesting to watch and i feel like in a lot of ways the poor people eat too many burgers discourse is just like today's version of that more than anything else Mm. Um, it's not really looking at the system it's not looking at what is driving the actual production of beef animals. It's just kind of like poor people are doing a thing and it's bad. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Let's point the finger at them. Yeah. I mean, it's easy. And like you see fast food restaurants and how much volume they turn out, but it's a little bit harder just visually to see how much steak is going out of a nice place. You know, like you just don't see it. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's part of it. Um, So I know that like we've touched on this a little bit, but let's get into a little bit more about how the myth of the small family farm being the most sustainable um, and what you found when it comes to looking at small family farms. Oh, yeah. So I guess first thing to say is like they're not inherently doomed. It it can work. Like I've seen it work. Uh, It depends a lot on the crop. Berry farms can be very profitable on pretty small acreage. Uh, beef ranch is not so much. So it just, it depends a lot on what you're doing and where you are, right? Yes, um, yes. I've had a lot of people go like, how many acres is a small farm? You know, well, like, you know, 500 acres, if you're raising beef again, or like even corn and soybeans is like nothing. But if you're raising berries, that's way too fucking much. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> it just depends. Yeah. Um, so like, there are ways that it can work. Uh, that said, you know, kind of like we discussed, making a food system work is not just farms. It's about, um, you know, distribution. You know, if you have anything that can't be eaten straight out of the plant, you know, there's a lot of processing that has to happen, just like turning an animal into meat, um, all that kind of stuff. Like, so there's some intermediary steps. So if you're a small operation, just by definition, there's only so much of that chain you can really participate in. Um, you know, like we have some people kind of doing very small farmer's market 
uh, scale efforts. But I, I feel like if you actually talk to people who are trying to survive entirely off a of farmer's market or multiple farmer's markets, they're not too pleased with it. Like it doesn't really work out as a business model. Um, the best thing you can say about it is it's a stepping stone to something else, but in and of itself, it's not really a viable livelihood for the most part. Um, so I think because a lot of consumers see farmer's markets so much, they're like, it must be working, but mm, I don't think so. <laughs> well, and I find that most farms that are at farmer's markets also have like a CSA to back them up or <laughs> other things that are trying to keep that viable. And even still, they're often taking a loss every year. Yeah. Well, and again, they're able to take that loss because they're, they often have a job doing something else or they worked in like software or finance for 20 years and then they retired. So this is, again, like, I don't want to say this like in a scornful way, but it's a hobby. Like it's not a viable business, which means it's the other thing. Mm. Um, and like people can have hobbies. That's totally fine. I have a garden, you know, it's crap. I'm just doing it for fun. That's okay. Um, not everything you do needs to be a business, but if we're talking policy and livelihoods, then yeah, we do need to, to kind of make that distinction. Um, you know, like people can have a hobby and do whatever they want, but if they're applying for government aid, you know, and like kind of bringing the state into it and why should the taxpayers pay for it? We do need to take a hard look at like, okay, what's it doing livelihood wise? Just from the terms of like trying to make a viable livelihood, the small thing is, is it's very challenging, right? Um, so something I want to point out here, we're talking about, again, kind of like the settling of the United States. Um, a thing that happened a lot is when they kind of had some conflicts with Native people and a decision was made to do a reservation, like, we're going to take your land here and you're going to live over there. Like, we made an executive decision, right? Um, that was also included in that removal was you're not going to farm or excuse me, you're not going to hunt or fish or, or gather anymore on your traditional lands. You're going to go over here and you're going to be a farmer. That was part of it, right? Um, so there were actually multiple times, uh, when that was done and most native and indigenous groups, and this is actually true across most of human history, the way people have farmed was not family by family. It wasn't a solo enterprise. It was the whole community together. Um, like even when people kind of had their own individual plot, it was like your spot in the bigger thing, right? Absolutely. That's normal. This whole like family farming thing that we do is not normal. Right. <laughs> Because it's been tried a few times in human history, and it has never worked out well. Um, which is, I feel like, something we should talk about more. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, these indigenous communities have had like five to 10,000 years of practice making livelihood, right? And one of the results of that long experience was it works better to farm as a whole community rather than everybody having their own plot. So anytime, like most of these, at least in the early days, like most of them did a lot of farming, you know, part of the year. And so the U.S. government says, you're going to go over here, you're going to be full-time farmers now, none of this hunting stuff. And um, so they're like, cool, we're farming now all the time. Let's all go do it. And then the U.S. government would watch this. They would go, wait a second. Because particularly, um, the one good story I have on this was up in Canada, but they were very similar colonial systems. Uh, the Cree people were set onto a number of reservations. And they're up in a wheat-growing area. There's a big wheat boom going on at the time. And so they, this was in the early days of automation. So they bought, you know, um, automated threshers, automated reapers, that kind of stuff, and some horses. And they all kind of pooled their resources to get that. They all worked them together. And they actually did really well for themselves, selling wheat onto the open market. And the Canadian government saw this going down and they were like, oh, ho, 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 hell no, 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 no. Mm -hmm. 
you can't actually be viable. We don't, we can't have that. Yeah, that's not allowed. No, no, no. When we said farming, we meant with hand tools, you're going to dig some holes with a shovel and uh, here's your hoe and you're going to be good. And so in order to enforce that, they broke up the land into individual family plots. And they were like, this is your family's plot. This is your family's plot. You're going to homestead. And this was something that the governments did with the explicit purpose of breaking these people economically, Mm. which I think says a lot about how much we've always actually known this stuff works. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? That's super indicative of how, like, yeah. And it also is like, not to mention just a part of like the the myth of what we have in our minds um, about indigenous people where it's like they didn't use automation they didn't blah 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 like it's like no you're just projecting your shit onto them when they're <laughs> like we're just trying to survive because you've literally taken everything from us so of course we're gonna freaking use whatever we have around us because we're people um, right well, and they treated it like a professional thing. And I feel like that almost kind of gets back to like, you know, um, you know, like, you're not supposed to make a living at this. That's not what we meant. And kind of like getting into that whole, again, we get offended when women's work gets compensated, you know, like this food processing. Totally. But we kind of got offended when people made actually made money off of growing food, too. Um, like people who weren't supposed to make money off of it, right? Um, so actually, like, kind of how I started looking into this was you know, just working with farms. I was working with a whole bunch of family farms in central Washington. And then they're like, okay, now go hit the Yakima Nation farm. I was like, what's that? That doesn't sound like a family farm. It was not. It is the Yakima Nation. (laughs) They have a farm. They have an orchard. And I was like, this is the tightest shit I've ever seen. (laughs) You know, like um, a lot of the family farms, like just because of, you know, like the, the minimal resources that we are very familiar with, um, there's just limited bandwidth. It's not even just about money. It's about bandwidth. You have a limited number of people. There's only so many things you can cover. Um, you know, so you kind of go through, like, we're, we're going through a checklist. This is food safety audits. And the one a lot of these people requested also had a lot of environmental stuff on it. So we're like, let's talk about pollinator habitat. What you got? And they're like, uh, there's a half acre over there that we don't mow. That's pollinator habitat. Uh-huh. And, you know, you go to the accommodation and they're like, yeah, we planted some pollinator strips over there. We planted them with like a rotation of flowers. So there's always going to be something blooming. We water it so they don't die. So there's actually something for the bees to eat. And I was like, oh, my God, they actually tried. Right, right. So totally <laughs> I had no idea. Thing. Right. I was like, I had no idea that was an option. Wow, you're actually taking care of it because just none of the other farms in the area were. And, and that may have changed. This was a few years ago. Um, so just stuff like that. And I was like, there's something to this Yeah, <laughs> about that. Well, and so I know, you know, before we had really started recording, you were talking specifically about how small, um, farms like family farms are some of the worst offenders when it comes to labor abuses. Yeah, they can be. Yeah. Um, that's really based off of North Carolina. So, so the thing that you have to understand about farm labor is it's, usually done through labor crews like contracting like you just Mm -hmm. call a guy and you're like hey i need 20 pickers right right um how's this dude getting the 20 pickers you know um so that's i mean that's the most convenient way for a farm is to not have to hire your own people deal with all the paperwork you just go get a, a contracting crew and you rent some guys that's the way to do it um so the similarity between this model and like the slave rental model back in the old south is extreme um you know that's just the easiest way to do it just go get some guys bring in a crew um 
So that can be undocumented workers. It can be H-2A. It can be, you know, a mixture of all kinds of things. Um, the thing about H-2A crews is they're really prone to human trafficking as well. Um, or just like some elements of it. So these people are, you know, they're maybe not kidnapped or whatever, but they were charged money for the application process, which you're not supposed to do. So a lot of these folks on H-2A crews are technically there under a legal visa. So on paper, they're legal, but they paid a lot of money to somebody to get that paperwork done. And now they're in debt to them and working that debt off. So it's legal debt peonage, which is super fun. Oh my God. Yeah. So that's how a lot of these labor contractors make their money. And it's funny because if you talk to the farmers, they're like, oh, yeah, like my workers are all legal. They all got H2A and like, oh, yeah, all the human trafficking must be happening somewhere else because I'm cleaning good. And you're like, (laughs) yeah, you have no idea what's happening here. Like, I really feel like to some extent, you know, number one, this this crew system exists for farm convenience, you know, because that's how business works is you do whatever is most convenient for the customer, which is the farm. Um but also there's there's an element of plausible deniability there. Like the farmers can keep using it, you know, enslaved or trafficked labor and still feel like they're a good guy, you know, and, and still keep presenting themselves as such, which is really, really fascinating to watch. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, we've talked a lot about like size and scale and labor. Um, and I don't know if this is something that you even focus on, but I'm curious, you know, one thing that I have noticed in the smaller family farms that are around where I am and kind of that partner with the organization that I'm a part of, one of the things that they really focus on, and these are vegetable farmers um, for the most part, uh, is, you know, things like crop rotation and uh, worrying about soil health and things like that. And I'm curious, you know, when you think about sustainability in terms of not just because I think it's important for us to think about sustainability as it relates to labor, as it relates to a sustainable economy. Um, but also when we're thinking about actual um, water practices, soil practices, things like that, what have you seen um, that has worked or not worked or what maybe uh, would your vision be for like what you would like to see happen in these farms, right. I guess? Right. So I'm going to answer your question kind of sideways, I guess. I kind of apologize. So like, so all these practices that you mentioned, you know, like cover cropping, crop rotations, you know, soil conservation, none of that shit is rocket science, right? This is all stuff that we've known for hundreds of years works. Right. Uh, It's stuff that we've all had the tools for, for hundreds of years. So the question is, it's not an issue of technology. It's not an issue of technique. The question is, why aren't we doing the stuff we've known how to do for hundreds of years? That's what we should be asking, right? Um. So again, like uh, the, the discussion around sustainable agriculture has been very technique centered. And I want us to kind of break the seal with that a little bit, mm. recognize that we we have known how to do this stuff for a very long time. We should be asking why, not what, right? Um, so there is another thing I wanted to tell you about, which fits really well into this. So we're going to do it. Um, yes. <laughs> so... Uh, So in the popular image, you know, when you have a family farm, it passes down through generations. Well, what happens uh, when you have a bunch of kids? Who does it go to? Mm. What do you do? (laughs) Ah. (laughs) The struggle. Right? Yeah, it's stressful. So what winds up happening? There's there's basically two routes you can go. One is we call the Jane Austen entailment route, right? Which is... (laughs) (laughs) 
you, you primogeniture, you know, like an, you have to keep the whole estate together and it goes to one offspring, you know, and in case of entailment, it was a male offspring, right? Um, that was done with the intention of keeping the estate together. And then everybody else in the family is like a dependent on this person. And as we see in Jane Austen, this shit causes a lot of drama. So people don't really do that so much anymore. Um, like seriously, your family will not have another Thanksgiving together for like three generations if you do this. Um, so the other route is you take your piece of land and everybody owns a piece of it. You know, like you had four kids well now everybody owns a quarter of it. And it's not like you have the 60 acres, you have that 60 acres. It's like you all own it together at a 25% share. Um, and that works okay for a generation or two. It can even go okay for three, but once you hit four, all shit hits the fan, right? Mm. So now you have, you know, 20 to 40 or more owners of this piece of land. Everybody has an equal share. In order to make a decision to do cover cropping or just try a crop that's a little bit different instead of, you know, corn or soybeans or whatever is happening in that area, you would have to have a meeting and make some kind of decision about that. Good luck pulling that off with people who are like third or fourth generation descendants of this person. They don't even know each other anymore. Some of them are dead and they're still getting checks. We don't know how that works, but it happens a lot. You know, um, <laughs> like taking a vote, right? Yeah. And, and the other thing is, I mentioned checks. Okay. So what'll happen is you'll have, you know, one or two kids who want to keep on and operating the farm. Well, since everybody owns a piece of that farm, everybody's getting a share of the proceeds, whether or not they're working there. So you have, you know, maybe one or two or three kids working the farm, and then they're, they're writing basically rent checks to this extended family, many of whom they don't know. Um, and that's where a lot of the proceeds are going. So when we talk about why family farms are so fucking poor and we put that all on agribusiness and we don't talk about the land tenure situation and how people are basically having to rent from their own families. And if you want to buy them out, that means you start your farm, you know, it can be millions of dollars in debt. And that's because of how this inheritance system is done. Um, cause this is a socialist podcast. It's because of private property. Yeah, totally. <laughs> You know, and so this there's this huge element of what's making farms poor. And, you know, if you want to cover crop in concept, very simple. In practice, you need to get probably like a seed drill or something. I was talking to uh, a guy who's in Ohio, Jordan Haywisher, who's working with farms to, you know, try and get them to cover crop. And he said, well, the seed drill that you need to keep up with a farm of the size that most of these people have, that's $80,000. Were you supposed to scrape up $80,000 if that's how many checks you're writing to your family every year to keep them off your back, you know? Um, and so what winds up happening, like they just don't have the money to invest back in the farm because you have all these absentee landlords. And in agriculture, there's a huge thing about like absentee landlords are bad. Absentee landlords cause degradation of the land because they're extracting wealth and they're not giving anything back. They never talk about how many of those folks are family um, mm. and how those absentee landlords exist because of the family inheritance system. So we have, what we're talking about here is a classic absentee landlords problem that's caused by the family farming system. They are part and parcel of the same thing. And what winds up happening, because you can't make any real decisions with that land, you wind up renting it out to somebody. So you just collect rent checks and split them up among the family, right? So um, if you're a renter, you know, renting this land, you have no incentive to invest in it. And you're just going to do like whatever agribusiness practice is just most straightforward to do. So you're going to grow corn, you're going to grow soybeans and you're not going to cover crop because it's not your land. You're not getting paid to do it. You don't have the money to do it because you're paying rent, you know, to this land baron family. Right. Um, and that's why this stuff doesn't happen. 
So if you look at, I can send you some numbers, but in like Maryland, for example, uh, environmentalists in Maryland decided that it was worth it to pay farmers to cover crop. Mm. And the price they're getting per acre is often more than the value of the crop itself. And they've been doing that for some 20 years. They've been paying farmers more than the crop is worth to cover crop for like 20 years. That's and amazing. <laughs> so, so guess how much of the acreage is covered cropped now after 20 years of this? How much? It is less than 30%. <laughs> and they're, they're the number one in the United States by a long shot. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. So when this is the thing, like we can, we can hyperventilate about practices all day and we can talk about incentivizing people all day. But if we don't understand where all this fucking money is going and right. why it's not invested back in the land, you're just pissing in a barrel. Right. That makes sense. <laughs> pissing into the wind. Sorry. I got my piss metaphors mixed up. It's okay. It uh, happens. <laughs> it happens. And so this kind of drives me nuts because we kind of talk about family farms like they're the solution. And I'm like, no, bitch, they're how we got in this mess in the first place. And mm. so it hurts, you know, for folks to kind of talk about how we're going to fix this by going back to a family system because the estate system that we call family farming, it is a system of private estates, is how we got into this agribusiness mess in the first place. They are not opposites on the end of a spectrum. They are two sides of the same pancake and it just hurts to watch people try and solve this in the least productive way possible by going back to family farms. We could look at some other models that actually work. Um, you know, like the native, you know, collaborative land ownership system. There's other groups in the U S who've been doing collaborative farming for a very long time, very successfully. We can talk about the Hutterites if you want, they're rock stars at it. Um, but they don't fit that family farm model. So we don't, gush about them like we can't use them in advertising because they don't fit that romance and so nobody knows about them because we know everything we know because of marketing yeah absolutely that was a lot no i mean (laughs) it was great so ideal sustainable food system would be kind of turning back to a collective maybe abolishing land ownership i don't know uh you know so here's the thing is like when you say private land ownership is the problem we need to do a collaborative collaboratively you know then they're like so land reform and i'm like no land reform is (laughs) happening already whether you want it or not because we keep getting terrified about how this farmland is going to turn over ownership well there's your fucking opportunity like you don't need any governmental redistribution it's all going up for grabs you know in the next 20 years um so just be aware that opportunity is coming organize get it and go do it you know That's, again, like, I feel like oftentimes people want the answer to be revolution. And you're like, revolutions don't have a great history of working out for anyone except the folks who are already second in line in that society in the first place. So I don't like them to be my first resort. Um, You know, like, especially when you have a giant opportunity like this, that, you know, like you don't, there's no political action involved. You don't need to build a coalition. You don't need buy-in. This is a great way to build coalitions. Um, you know, like there are all, all these rural areas that are depopulated. There are great livings to be made out there um, if you just recognize the opportunity and go for it. Um, again, this is not something one person's going to be able to pull off on their own. This is a group effort. Uh, so organize. And um, again, there's not really any political change needed here. This is 100% a business problem. That's what makes me crazy about it. Hmm. So, well, this has been super fascinating. Um, <laughs> is there anything else you'd like to share before we say goodbye? Uh, no, I think I word vomited everything out. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk to us. 
we really appreciate it. And, and this has been like a really interesting perspective on the entire agriculture system. Yeah, it's yeah, it's funny. It's just I feel like every time I've actually looked at data behind an agricultural like thing that everyone just knows, it turns out to not be held up by the data at all. Like it's fascinating. There's so much mythology being generated out here. And you're like, that always lets you know that someone's generating it and they're doing it for a reason, which is super fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this was super fun. Uh, if you have any more questions, let me know. We can follow up. Yeah, sounds amazing. Well, that was freaking awesome. Um, So you should definitely click on the links below if you have any interest in learning more about what Sarah was talking about. I know we kind of jumped all over the place there, but there's a lot of cool information out there and you should stay informed. As always, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Season of the Bee. We're also on Facebook at Season of the Bitch. You can send us an email, seasonofthebee at gmail.com. You can give us your money on Patreon because we're fucking worth it. And you can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. We love hearing what y'all have to say. Uh, And I love all of my coven. Love you guys. Bye. Bitch.